Hello and welcome back to the final episode in this mini bonus series of my top five podcasts of 2023. And today's episode is with Jennifer Moss, who made her second appearance on the show. So thanks for listening to this mini series. Thanks for listening to the show throughout the year and for your support. And I look forward to a new series starting in January, where I'll continue to have world leading experts on everything from economics to flexible work and communication. So enjoy the episode. I'll see you again soon. Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. My name's Ollie Henderson and this week I've got a return guest. Jennifer Moss is a workplace speaker and strategist. She's an award-winning author, journalist and national radio columnist. And she's one of the world's leading experts on burnout, which seems like an appropriate subject for various reasons right now. Partly because there are very few people with whom I speak who don't express some personal feelings of burnout. I mean, I, for one, absolutely burnt out right now. And having chatted to Jennifer, it gave me a little nudge to ease things off over the next few weeks, which is why I'm calming down on many of the things I'm doing, including this podcast, the newsletter, and LinkedIn. So Jen's already had a positive effect on my summer. I'm sure she's going to have a positive effect on yours after you listen to the show today. She's in the middle of writing a new book, so it's deep in the research phase, and she's got some incredible insights that she shares with us on the show. We talk about many subjects, including why some companies aren't embracing change and what they need to change that, the challenges faced by Gen Z in the workplace and why they're so focused on purpose-driven work. We also talk about the various hybrid models and agile approaches to work right now. And we talk about mentorship. We talk about technology and how that can support employee well-being. And finally, we get practical about what leaders and businesses can do to build a positive culture that attracts the best talent. You'll find links to all of Jen's work in the show notes. Please do also check out my newsletter if you're not already subscribed. Future Work Life is on Substack. And also check out previous episodes of this podcast. You can go back to around March 2021 to hear my conversation with Jen. But particularly in this series, we've been talking about the importance of community and burnout, among other things. So that's enough from me. Here's my conversation with Jennifer Moss. So Jen, it's really nice to have you back on the show. And um, it's been about two years since we last spoke. And I'm really intrigued. What would you say is the single most important insight you've had since we last spoke? Oh, I love that question. It's a big one. I feel like what I've learned, um, you know, just in this business writing, researching is that we have had this kind of real systems changing, world order changing moment. And that this isn't, you know, in work, it isn't just this disruption from a crisis. You know, it isn't just, uh, you know, Uber taking over taxi. It's it's um, really, I think, going to be a catalyst moment in history when we look in the workforce and that we're seeing people creating these, you know, these really great new ways of working, new ideas, new innovations, um, new experiences of work based on what they learned from the crisis. And mm. then there are others that are really trying to hold back, you know, onto the past. And so what I've been watching, what I've been witnessing has been this really cool kind of mindset shift of those who are going, I think, to be super competitive. And then the other ones that are still just trying to hold on tight. And uh, I guess it's all still t- TBD, but that kind of mindset shift, I think, is what is most exciting about the future of work right now. Mm. 
Yeah, in my book, I described us as experiencing the greatest work-life revolution in history. And I was, I was talking more around the sort of sheer number of people whose work life has fundamentally changed. But I suppose with most revolutions or in any revolution, you expect there to be significant change afterwards. And I, hearing what you're saying there, is it as simple as those that will prosper will be those that embrace the change and those that don't resist? Is that too simplistic? I think that's exactly it. I think we can kind of cut it down to that exact statement that we've seen this in the past. We've seen people resist change and it really, you know, holds them back. I mean, Blockbuster Mm. versus Netflix, like I said, Taxi versus Uber and just, you know, AI, people that are afraid of it will struggle in the future of work versus those that say, how do we you know, figure out how to embrace it in a way that um, still builds our people into that equation, I think will be the most competitive. And so it it is really just saying, okay, you can't ignore the behavioral economics of the pandemic. When people face their mortality for multiple years, when you look at the Gen Z workforce by 2025, making up, you know, a third of the population and 27% of the workforce by, you know, by 2040, it's looking like 50%. We mm. can't just say that there's a there's a way to return to normal. If you look at it that way, then you're cutting off a huge part of your workforce, um, which is just one example. So there's no way to go back. And I think that is what is um, what is most important for us to really hold on to and for leaders to hold on to. Um, you know, we can't just rely on being the biggest or the longest, you know, institutional bank, for example, or ha- resting on the fact that we're sort of giant tech company and there's no way to to break us down at this point. I think that's naive. I think that that will change if you know, if there's a window for some competitor that's up and coming to rise, you Mm. know, you need to realize that that's a potential for them if they're doing, if they're embracing the change. Sure. When we spoke last time, we discussed burnout a lot. And it's partly because you had a book coming out about it. And, you know, I'd like to say that it was, um, I think it was perfectly timed. I'd like to say, oh, isn't, haven't things changed since then? And your books contributed to this significant shift in the way that people think about burnout. And I'm sure it has to some degree, but unfortunately, burnout is still on the rise. And um, I suppose going back to my question before about those, what characterizes businesses that may thrive and those that may become stagnant. What characterizes businesses which have responded well to burnout? Because I feel like they might go into that camp as well. You know, I feel like the companies that understand what drives burnout and how to try to create environments, um, and because it is a work thing, as we discussed last time, create environments in which burnout is less prevalent, maybe also those that ultimately thrive. Am I being too optimistic in, in that in that in, in that in that point of view? I, I think you're accurate because the way that we increase well-being is by going further upstream and preventing chronic stress and burnout. So mm. I mean, you can't have a well-productive, healthy, engaged workforce unless you're you're really looking at the root causes of, of burnout. And so yeah. those organizations that are doing a really good job, obviously, it's helping their organizations to thrive. But we're still... You know, and I thought this was really funny that 
a few weeks ago or maybe last month, I, I someone was saying, you know, burnout is just so 2020, you know, and I, I laughed and I said, you know, that the, you know, that the burnout metrics right now and the data is showing it's worse than it ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's higher in lots of sectors, especially Gen Z workforce. There is one large Cygnus stat of 15,000 plus employees and 98% of Gen Z workers said that they've been experienced burnout that month. So, you know, and symptoms of burnout. And so I think we, we want it to be in the past, um, but it still is highly prevalent. It's a real issue. And so what you're saying is right, is we need to be looking at strategies that really start way, you know, way further upstream at the the little, you know, the little tactics. I mean, just every manager should be analyzing their employees' workload and looking at ways that they're maybe being inefficient. Um, I love Shopify's calendar purge, you know, where they went in and they, they ended up gaining something like um, 430,000 unique calendar appointments by purging and and you imagine how many hours they said it was like hiring an extra 150 people to their workforce by just doing this you know yeah. calendar purge and it made people just as efficient and productive but um without all the meetings so there's very simple tactics that we can do because workload is the leading cause of burnout just help people get their time back and then they can have more self-care and then they can be more well, and then they can be more productive. They can sell more, they can be more effective. There's better shareholder value. So I think that, yes, like to thrive, you need to still be looking at burnout prevention as the strategy. Yeah. And I think particularly at the moment, because there it's natural when there are more challenging economic conditions and businesses budgets are squeezed there's more pressure to do more with less that's what you hear all the time at the moment do more with less do more with less do more with less but of course that just puts more pressure onto leaders to put more pressure onto their teams and as you say it cascades down into these issues um what, what do people misunderstand about performance culture though because isn't isn't you look at high performing athletes and they are not under constant strain in fact that's the complete opposite i'm just interested from i know that you spend a lot of time researching putting you know looking at case studies of organizations that do have best practice in these areas i mean what have you learned from companies that do employ a a performance culture um idea but actually do it in a healthy sustainable way I love that question because i'm spending a lot of time right now in the writing and research looking at areas um you know of of giving time back and and time capture, but also just, you know, the four day work week and why that works and, and what organizations are doing really well to build in, you know, build in time to make sure that they're being more efficient, but they're also measuring all those metrics that matter at the same Mm -hmm. time. And they're correlating it to, uh, to well-being and happiness and productive relationships, which is a big one. Um, Great example of Atlassian, and I use them a lot because they're doing this amazing job of really focusing on autonomy. And Mm. they've always been a digital first company, but when they brought in Annie Dean, who's looking at the kind of work anywhere uh, shift, a lot of what she's doing is recognizing that people still want to see each other, but that they don't need to be in front of each other's faces five days a week because that's not actually healthy. 
Um, really great Gallup data shows that one day a week, um, a two at most is the healthiest kind of combo. So, mm. you know, we don't need to be with each other all the time. That hybrid, if it works, could really could actually be effective if it worked better. Um, but what she started to do is in the organization, not just her, but with her leadership, create these environments where in sectors where there's a lot of employees create the most amazing space for people to go in. And it's very work focused, you know, so it's, it's like removing the distractions and the stuff that's really stressful about open workspaces and stuff, but really designing it. So it's a space that people can go, they can collaborate, they can have face-to-face time, and then they can also just hang out. And the occupancy rate is so high there because they get to choose. And that's Mm. a big thing. Plus she, you know, in the organization has people going, has the opportunity to go to four different offices anywhere within their, you know, international um, office spaces or locations. They get to go four times a year. So just go to New York and they're supported in doing that and working there for a week just to meet other people. And then they also bring in other people like, executives into these hubs so that you get access to senior leadership within the organization. So for those younger, you know, Gen Zs and millennials who want to FaceTime with the boss, the leadership team, they get that access. So it makes them feel like there's less atrophy and they're measuring things, which is really cool. Like things like what happens when we have these kind of on-site events where people are together? Well, they measured and found that there's more ad hoc in-person coffee dates that are a result of these types of collisions. So they're measuring how it's actually building their relationships. And that's just like one example of when we have autonomy, when we have people choosing and then making the place that they want to go to exciting and amazing and wonderful and productive that they choose and opt in to go. Um, Mm. So this idea of forcing people or losing agency is a really is a detriment. And we need to be thinking more about how do we give more autonomy and personalization to employees versus, you know, forcing them to, to do something we want. Yeah. I've loosely based this most recent series of the podcast around community because over the past few months and from lots of different angles, I've just been hearing more and more people talk about the importance of community. And I think it's partly a response to the fact that although many people do enjoy the autonomy and freedom and flexibility of working remotely or hybrid, you know, to some degree controlling where they spend their time, I think there is also an overriding sense that having connection with people is this base human need, isn't it? How do you think that the idea of work community has changed over the past few years? And I think it's since COVID. It may have been changing before that as well, but I think I think clearly that is just this point in time that you can't deny this accelerated things. How do you think about community now? Has it changed in your mind? Oh, it absolutely has changed. It it definitely has changed. I, the great research that I found, which I thought was just said so much, was this way that we meet and look for personality traits in our friendships has changed um, mm. within our work context. But it used to be that when you went into the office, the way you made friends was through kind of likability and it common shared interests and you'd look for someone maybe that was funny or, you know, up, we're really drawn to optimistic, lively people, right? So yeah. you saw that 
happen just naturally network effect, then you'd have sort of that contagion effect with people sort of grouping around people that are optimistic. You create a really healthy network effect in an organization and that creates culture, yeah. right? So this is all sort of happening in these sort of webbing within um, an organization's scaffolding. And now culture, with the research you found is that the way that we are, the, the type of personality traits that we're drawn to now are accountability and competency. Mm. And so when I think about, you know, who do I want to go and have like drinks with after work or who do I want to go to the movies with or party with, you know, on a Saturday night, they're not people that I'm looking for for, you know, to be accountable and competent, you know, I, I want people to be fun and, you know, share my interests and whatever I love. And so that, that change in the way that we're drawn to people makes it just by nature, less fun and less happy. And so I keep saying that right now work is like school with no art gym or recess. And Mm. That's exactly how I feel right now is that work has lost this fun and it's because we're not creating community in the same way. We're not able to have these kind of ad hoc collisions. And when we're fully remote, we don't get those opportunities. And so I think digital first or remote is is good in theory as long as you can create some face-to-face time you know, budgets that were saved on commercial real estate, fly your people together for three days every quarter or figure out a way to have like what Atlassian is doing is creating hubs and events and programs where people can can connect. Even just one best friend at work it has all of these benefits, as you would know through Gallup. But I mean, you're going to reduce your burnout by 41% if you have one best friend at work. So if that's the strategy, you know, you have to spend and invest on creating these face-to-face moments where you're looking for that person that you might want to have, you know, after work yeah. dinner with versus someone that, you know, will get your Excel spreadsheet back to you <laughs> before the deadline. Mm. Yeah, that resonates actually, not just, I mean, it resonates with me personally, but it also from this many conversations I've having with, with people recently, I think, I think you're right. I think fun it's not you know you wouldn't necessarily say that that was near the top of your list until you really think about it and think about those moments in your life in your career where you've enjoyed working the most and they often correlate with where you've done your best work as well I think these things are just inherently connected Mm -hmm. um one last thing on on burnout specifically so we've talked about it a little bit from the organizational point of view and the sort of leadership and how they should be thinking about it but I'm, I'm interested personally because look I think about this stuff a lot. And yet I would say I'm probably, I think I'm, my wife said this morning to me, I think you'll probably burn out. You just need mm-hmm. some time. You need to be a bit more focused on fewer things. And, and I suppose from your point of view, how do you reconcile the fact that you obviously genuinely care about your work? You seem to really enjoy doing it. But ultimately, our relationships, particularly those with our families, are most important and I think that we forget sometimes that burnout can actually be worse when you love your job and when you get passionate about it people associate burnout with when you don't enjoy work so how do you reconcile that stuff personally and what advice could you have for individuals what advice have you got for me this is a question for me help me out Jen what should I be doing I love this I'm happy to dole my advice based on evidence and not necessarily based on anecdotally what I 
do all the time. Um, I'm a, I'm a person that has to really be intentional because as you know, I'm really passionate about my work too. Um, and it, it was my own, and I write about it in the book, but my own experience of burnout because of this exact thing as a startup co-founder in a tech, you know, world where it's hard on women to raise capital. And then also just, I want, I have, especially then pre-pandemic, I had a lot of FOMO. I always, I wanted to be on every board. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to really dig into the work and uh, it led to my burnout and having to leave my own company and spending a good four or five months regrouping and, um, and recognizing, kind of looking up and realizing my relationships with my family were were being tested and uh, things were really shaky. And so I don't want people to go through that because it's really difficult. So I started to build sort of this infrastructure around deathbed regrets. Other people kind of look at it in their own sort of whatever their own, you know, boundary setting schematic. But I really try to look at if I do say I want to do this, what is the consequence of that? You know, how many let's quantify how many dinners that will mean I have to miss. How much travel will I have to do? Mm. Um, How much time will that mean that I am not working on something that I'm really good at? You know, often I'll do things that I'm not that great at. It's sometimes in our lives, it's not about learning and developing. It's about mastering. So where Mm. are you? Have you gotten to the point of really having strong mastery in something? Because that feels just as good as it does to be a jack of all trades and for me, I realize specialization is what makes me happier and more effective and um, have more boundaries um, between work and life. So it's it's always kind of this value question that you have every year and looking at quantifying it with data and figuring out what is the perfect recipe for you. Uh, and I think too, I mean, at the end of the day on your deathbeds, will we regret you know not joining that board or will we regret that we don't have our kids um, you know, around us in that moment before we depart. And I think those are the things that sound pretty morbid, um, but they're meaningful. And we tend to as humans be pretty myopic and don't think macro, but the more we kind of think macro, the better our decision-making apparatus is. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I like that exercise as well. The deathbed thing. Although again, it is never black and white, is it? Because I get a lot of, satisfaction derive a lot of meaning from my work as I know you do as well and therefore I think that does come into how you might look back upon your life family comes absolutely first for me and I've kind of designed my life around for example being able to go to my kids school in in 30 minutes I'll be going to my four-year-old teddy bears picnic party at school and I'm lucky that I've built my life in a way that I can do that and yet it also matters to me that my work I constantly feel like I'm making progress and growing and and so I do think it's difficult and I think it's I like the way you framed it through research because when I first started this podcast it was called take my advice I'm not using it and it was because it's human nature again, I think, that we all often, particularly when it's in our area of specialism, understand the right thing, but it doesn't mean we do it ourselves. And I sometimes think we could remind ourselves and not beat ourselves up about it. I I totally agree with that. And I love what you said. And I think it has to be less, again, less around balance, but more around harmony and this idea of how do we, at sometimes there's hustle times, like there's times in mm. our, you know, when I'm launching a book, 
the family understands that there's going to be a busier mom or there's seasons of speaking too, as you know, you know, spring and fall, I'm really busy. So I'm going to be away more, but it's, I think it's more around looking at overall, you know, and I know there's people that feel like they're passionate, but I, this article that I wrote for Harvard business review um, when passion leads to burnout was pre-pandemic and it's just yeah. circulating again. I just saw it pop um, come out. I mean, two days ago, and I feel like it's just even, it's even more resonant today because, you know, then I'm writing about healthcare and teaching and nonprofits and entrepreneurs. And he, I think that all of us now have felt mm. so like compelled to keep working to the brink in every yeah. sector and our passion fatigue is really high right now. And instead of looking at this as a time for productive rest and restorative rest, we're looking at it as business as usual. Oh, now we're back. So let's work harder to catch up on maybe what we lost. And people are saying, I literally, you know, physically cannot yeah. do that. And so we have to be really clear. And you and I have privilege too as entrepreneurs that we have choice. Whereas mm. there's a lot of people that have, they can't say no and they can't uh, decide or choose. And so I think our place of privilege means that we have to be modeling the behaviors we want to see in the rest of um, people that might not have a choice. Yeah, hundred percent. And and on that, so, you know, there are very many people who, you know, you, again, in an ideal world, the manager would act as leader, coach, mentor all of these different things we talk about which clearly all have their own individual value but you know managers and leaders were struggling before the pandemic managers self-report that they don't have the skills required to lead in a hybrid world right so to expect them to also just happen to acquire the skills of a coach not just a you know work coach but a life coach is just unrealistic and actually almost too much pressure on managers Again, maybe this is just a bit of advice and thinking from your point of view. But I think you value mentorship as well. And I wonder whether that's something people can look for. And again, maybe look for in places that they don't necessarily expect to find it. I mean, what's your experience of mentorship been? Uh, I think it's it's critical to have people be able to see what they can be. And in organizations where you don't have someone that is looks like you or, you know, believes in the same things as you or you're aligned with or does allyship with, it's hard for you to see a future there. And so mentorship is important from that standpoint. I think a lot of, you know, Gen Zs right now are not getting that kind of FaceTime with their senior leaders and and bosses like they used to, especially, especially if you're remote. So having yeah. mentorship and making it really part of the you know, the strategy is super important. Uh, what, you know, we're seeing in our younger workforce, they're saying that their careers are atrophying. Um, they're the most likely to quit. They feel like they had this kind of crappy experience in the pandemic of university where they didn't get a lot of that networking. They didn't get a lot of conflict resolution training. They didn't get feedback upward, you know, feedback. They don't know how to manage up. And so they're really looking for this first few years of 
their experience of work to be almost an extension of what they didn't get. And so when you put them right back into the same scenario, they're just like, okay, there's what's the pointism, which is why we're seeing so much quiet quitting. People yeah. are just like, there's no point. And also I'm, you know, eight years further off than my parents have been able to buy a house and, you know, the, the economic future for them looks different than ours. So there's a bunch of reasons why if we're really looking at kind of creating a healthy talent pool and a healthier generation of work, mentorship will play a massive role. You know, I've done some uh, work with 10KC, um, better up in 10KC, great examples of that mentorship. But 10KC is this idea of 10,000 coffees, you know, and sitting down and being able to actually just like have a coffee with someone that mm. you're connected to and you have kind of um, formalized conversations, but it's more like thought starters and it gives an opportunity for people to also have this reverse mentorship because you're both conversing about a specific topic. And so I think we need these easy ways of connecting with people that develop friendships as well. And then formalize mentorship where there's continuing education, where you're, you know, working together to help build up uh, uh, our younger workforces potential and, and opportunity um, and succession you know, within the organization. Mm. Yeah, I think the reverse mentorship thing is really interesting, actually, because as you say, you've mentioned a few times about Gen Z, a lot of the survey data shows things such as Gen Z value purpose more than, for example, remuneration. And I think there was skepticism I read when some people saw those results and said, oh, of course, this is the idealism of youth. And you know, these things fade with time. And perhaps these things do, but I think there has been a generational shift. And I think, again, perhaps it's partly due to the situation during COVID. But of course, with every generation, there is just change. Having meaning at work is not a bad thing. <laughs> Having meaning at work should be a positive thing. And again, if you look at all of the data, the evidence, often when we have meaning and purpose, people want to spend more time on their work and invest in it to build their skills and that creates the possibility that they can do better work and that improves performance and it's a benefit to an organization mm -hmm. understanding it appreciating it and then trying to embrace it and you know accepting that this is a process and you can't get it right immediately but knowing that this is just something new and fresh that you know younger people bring to the workforce has got to be a good thing right uh, i love that this generation is um, pushing back on the status quo because every generation pushes back on the status quo. I mean, yeah. that's what's going to happen. So why are we so intimidated by that? I mean, we should know that that's what every, every, the alpha generation is going to do the same thing with their own wants and needs and desires. And I think that, you know, this group, because, and this is my, you know, sort of my behavioral, uh, you know, economist hat on is that with them not having the same belief that they're getting to these specific, ta you know, tangible things like houses and cars and all of that, they're, they're accepting that if they're not going to have those things, then they would really, you know, they're going to fight for having purpose and meaning. They're going to want to enjoy what they do if it means sacrificing as much pay. And yet, 
they still like we still have to compensate people. That's corporate hygiene. If someone isn't feeling like they're fairly compensated, you know, like I say, we're never going to actually solve for burnout unless there's pay equity. And we're looking at what, you know, 300 Mm. years before that's going to happen. So burnout will basically never be solved without that. So we need to be looking at. We need to be looking at, you know, fair compensation that's just a hygiene piece, but also recognizing that when you look at this generation, we tend to have this sort of reverse ageism. We we it's just as bad to call a whole generation lazy and entitled as it is to say they're past their prime. I mean, we need to be looking at this as a way of kind of reducing the ageism mindset by figuring out what is the benefit of radically accepting this group. And they're also the ones that we've built up to have an opinion. We've asked them to share their opinion. We've asked them to be involved in solutions and not having deference in the same way. And so now that they are and using social media to proliferate these workplace conversations, I mean, we're so shocked that, you know, we, we raised this generation to be exactly as how we raised them. And so they're here now and we could be learning, we could be gathering data, you know, what is quit talk and why does it actually, you know, take someone to that point where they're publicly quitting on TikTok? Yeah. What is rage applying? What can we do as leaders to figure out what are these things that were always there, but this social media proliferation is making it so that we have to react. And instead mm. of just, you know, being one of the 2% of over 50s on TikTok, where there's you know, at least a good 50% of Gen Z's on TikTok and using it an hour and a half a day versus 2% of over 50s using it maybe coming in once a month. I mean, we need to be not looking at it like I need to all of a sudden at my age be really engaged in social media in that way. No, I need to be using the data to learn. What can I learn from this? What is really going on with this workforce? How do I create strategies to be able to deal with what they're telling us that they need? Because radical acceptance is what's going to make us a really exciting, healthy workforce. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So I'm in danger here of trying to um, encapsulate a very complex world of work into one single question, but forgive me. Um, So... We talked about some of the important things happening in the world of work, but of course, a lot of leaders, a lot of organizations are thinking, well, okay, what do we do about it? Where do we even start? I've accepted that we need to embrace this. I've accepted that there are pros and cons of remote work versus in-office work, and maybe hybrid is a good solution, but what does hybrid look like? If we take a step back and let's just talk about some principles which just apply to every organization as they embrace this opportunity to rethink what work looks like. So what would you tell a leader who comes to you with that very open-minded approach? Well, I'd say I I love that you're coming to me with this very open-minded approach because it's scary and, you know, it's challenging. But I think that what is so important is to let go of the the marriage that we have to the way we thought things were going to be in our experience in our, even us as leaders, like what we thought we were going to be doing in this job and recognizing that something really major is happening. And one of the things that entrepreneurs do, and I know I have, 
is I, you get so married to this idea, you know, that it has to be this way and you can't let it go when it's maybe not the right time or the right product or, you know, or it's not meeting the needs of the people that you're serving. And that's difficult for us to do when we've been so ingrained in a certain way, a certain style. And so what I'm saying is just be agile, always iterate, take data, learn, shift instead of thinking, okay, well, I put this, all this money into it. And so this is how it has to be. Our big buildings, I put so much money into it. I need to just get everyone back so we can have, you know, people thriving inside of these urban centers. I mean, that's wonderful and I get it, but it's a sun, like the sunk cost theory is I think really driving and, and creating these diminishing returns. And so instead we have to kind of look at it in this, I, I keep saying radical acceptance of where we're at. And the more we can just like let that go, the healthier we'll feel, the weight will be gone. And then it's, okay, what do we start this new? And it's really about not making everything an overhaul. It's about tiny pilots, testing in groups, trying it out, seeing if it works here. If Why doesn't it work over here? And yeah. a big way that we used to lead before was I'm going to make a value change and then the whole company will have a mass communication around it and then we'll all drive this value and it'll be what we do for three years and then we'll abandon it. Let's just do things in very incremental, micro shifting kind of ways, small data, gray area data, and start to proliferate in a healthy network effect over time. Because what this pandemic and what this crisis has ta taught us is that anything can and will happen. Um, and so thinking that this will never happen again, like we've been through it, that's done. You know, it's going to be 150 years before we're going to have another you know, crisis is naive. So getting yeah. into a new, totally life-changing way of working is, is what we need to do now. And if we do, it's, it's actually really exciting. Um, mm. So people need to look at that as it's, it's scary, but it's really transformational and exciting and we could be leaders in that space. And that, isn't that what kind of legacy we want to leave? Yeah. Just wanted to talk about technology for a minute because look, it can be a mistake to assume that technology is the answer to everything, particularly when you might argue that technology has provoked many of the issues that we're experiencing now. Just, you know, connectivity, brilliant unlock and the curse of the past few years. Uh, I do think it's interesting about how we think about applying technology to help some of these problems. You know, to mention 10KC, which I assume is facilitated through technology and better up is connecting people through tech. I wonder how you see the best organizations utilizing technology in a positive way to support those people who are experiencing challenges in this emerging world because of course we're always adapting and as we adapt we're going to make mistakes and we have to fix those mistakes as we go along and it might not be specific examples about technology but i suppose philosophy about where technology fits into this equation well, you know that I'm a big fan of gathering data, but one of the things that I think is really important is to be always measuring e efficiency and where technology leads to overwork. Um, one mm. example, I'm working with this organization and doing some research with them and um, their RSM 
great kind of global firm um, in the accounting kind of that space. And what they measured was around process and trying to, um, with the themes, they were measuring burnout, actually, which I love. They were looking at burnout mm. and what came up, uh, out was that, you know, the process enablement there, you know, when you look at accounting firms and some of these, you know, big four consulting firms, a lot of the compliancy stuff is forced on these organizations and there's always change. And then you have to get new processes and new technology to support compliancy. And then what we learned was that the culture is amazing there. They love and trust their people. They really think that their organization's taking great care of them. But where the workload came in was just process enablement, you know, people that are using the tools, maybe not um, involved at that level where it's being designed, you know, silos happen. Um, maybe in the pandemic, when you had to pivot so fast, there was less training. And so what happened is we're still sort of doing it in this way that we learned in that really intense part of the pandemic. And so it's never really that efficient. I think yeah. of healthcare, electronic record keeping, not being able to be with the patient because you're spending so much time in, in these record keeping. A lot of these things that we just put big buckets around, oh, overwork is the leading cause of burnout. Well, where do we actually get to the point where the technology could be used in a way that's more efficient or the training could be better, or we could have process ambassadors that take the technology and actually bring it into every single part of the organization to help people enable the technology better. Um, what we've done over the last couple of years is just jam technology at people and not really come back to say, is it still efficient? Is it working? Do people know what they're doing? And we need to be thinking about that along with the, the technology thrash for people that are comfortable in their personal lives using AI, using all of this really fast, smart mm. technology, and then coming into organizations and it's Excel, you know, and when you come within with this kind of real adoption of high level, smart thinking, intuitive tech, and then have to be in an organization where it's clunky and old and, and it, they haven't built up their infrastructure, they're not ready to change all of these things around technology is like it can be used in a really efficient, healthy way. But unless we examine, you know, where those pain points are, then yeah. we can't really tackle um, the issue of when technology becomes burdensome. And so I think, again, it's always gathering data. But when we figure that out, we can use technology in a really powerful way that enables us versus disables us. Mm. Great. Well, look, Jen, always a pleasure to chat and um, I'm looking forward to reading your new book when it comes out. Is there anything you want to leave us with? We covered, covered quite a lot, I think, again today, but is there anything you want to leave us with before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, we did cover quite a lot. I always love our conversations. They're always so great. And um, I, I do think that there's, you know, as, as much as it's been really stressful, and I mentioned the dialectical theory, you know, a lot, but we we don't want to waste the crisis. And I keep saying that, you know, we don't want to waste the crisis. That's always what we we've said, you know, in tech companies, it was always like, okay, this is really traumatic. How do we fix this? Or we might not have payroll for next week. You know, how do we figure out mm. how to battle that back? And it was always, okay, what are we going to learn? How do we reframe? How do we take the best of a situation and move it into the future of work. And I, I see organizations doing that really well. And I think, you know, it would be great to see more 
firms, more organizations really look at this time as optimistic, you know, and um, we're tired. And yes, we're, we're feeling a little exhausted. And looking at this, though, is, okay, how do we make it so that the future of work is this one that we've always wanted? You know, it, it is sort of, it's possible right now. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jen. Thank you, Ollie. Good to see you.